This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Katie McMahon, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Nice to be here. Katie is coming to us from Tasmania, right? Whereabouts in Tasmania? So I'm near Hobart, just on the outskirts of Hobart, where it's quite foresty. Oh, lovely. Katie McMahon has previously published articles in The Age and The Quarry before writing her debut novel, The Mistake, while attending a masterclass run by the internationally best-selling author Fiona McIntosh. Yay! We love Fiona. The yeah, mist- great. Isn't she, Isn't she great? Yeah. The Mistake is being described as women's fiction at its best for fans of Leanne Moriarty and Marianne Keys. So we, we know that you live near Hobart in Tasmania and you're a GP as well. Yeah, that's right. So that's kind of my day job. Yeah. And um, you teach communication skills to medical students. Yes, I do. So I it, it recently I realised it was 25 years since I was a first-year medical student when I met wow. a bunch of the new first-year medical students, which I can't believe how quickly 25 years goes, right? But, yes, I do. I, I teach them so both, you know, how to kind of ask questions and, and sound empathic and be empathic and get to know people and their stories, but also more technical stuff about what questions to ask. Right. Okay. All right. Well, we will we'll get to that. But firstly, I want to start with, you know, where your passion, I mean, obviously you've got a passion for science, being a GP, <laughs> and where it was that your love of reading and writing started. Look, I have always loved reading and writing. As a child, I just read everything, you know, cereal boxes, books from the library, books off my mum's shelf, which were probably totally inappropriate for me to be reading. And then, yeah, I loved writing. I always really enjoyed doing my my homework, like I was really <laughs> kind of nerdy. And I can remember being upstairs in my mum's my, my study, there would be this old computer, you know, with the green blinking cursor and I would be doing my English homework and I would just spend hours like really enjoying kind of nailing a sentence or nailing a paragraph. And, you know, my friends would all be like, oh, wasn't it a pain to write that essay? And and I'd be like, oh yeah, it was such a pain. But actually deep down, I'd be thinking, oh, I really enjoyed writing that. And then I, and I nearly became a journalist. My, my father's a journalist and I was accepted into a journalism course, but I took a gap year. And while I was away, you know, having my gap year, I kind of had this epiphany that I really wanted to do medicine. I wanted to become a doctor. So I came back to Australia, having had this epiphany, and I needed to do year 11 and 12 again, because the first time around I'd done, you know, English and English lit and a language and drama, loved all that. But of course, to do medicine, I needed physics and chemistry and biology and like the hard maths. 
And so I, I kind of knuckled down and did all that and was lucky enough to get a place in medicine. And What made you think that you, what was the epiphany? Was it a moment? Of- yeah, uh, no, it wasn't. It, I guess it kind of all came to a moment where I had the thought, but you know, I was a teenager. I was doing a lot of soul searching and we you know what's my life for. And it, and it was, it was to do with wanting to help others. Like it certainly wasn't like, oh my goodness, I want to be a scientist. And when you said before about having a passion for science, I kind of roll my eyes because obviously I think science is great. And of course we need it as a doctor and I'm not saying I don't employ it as a doctor. I certainly do. But I would still say actually that my passion for medicine is around the people and the stories and the sense of having an opportunity to try in some small way to to maybe help some people. That's really what drove it rather than I can't wait to discover another cause of some some disease, yeah? Mm. Particularly in being a GP, I guess. I mean, you're hearing stories day in, day out, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And helping people, yep. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, and to go back to and having done Year 11 and 12, that is a huge commitment, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I did the two years again and I was so, I was seen as such a weirdo because I was going to this high school where, you know, everyone else was in uniform and I was allowed to wear casual clothes because I was older. I, I went to a different high school. Yeah, so I was kind of the weird the weird girl who they were all like, oh, my goodness, imagine doing this twice. She must be And sick. is this in Hobart? No, no, it was around where I grew up, um, which is in Frankston in Victoria. Oh, right, okay. I mean, I'm sure that anybody that goes back to year 11 and 12 voluntarily is yeah. seen as a weirdo. <laughs> Totally. Oh, I was so weird. Because most people can't wait to finish and get out. Yeah, I know. I know. Okay. So you come back and you decide you want to do medicine. Talk me through that uh, and the challenges of that because that can't have been easy. Oh, no, it wasn't easy. So it was around that time that I moved to Tassie. Why? I went to, to, to study medicine. I scraped in to University of Tasmania. But I have to say, I didn't scrape out. I did quite well. <laughs> Good. Thanks. Yeah, so I came to Hobart and this was in sort of the mid-90s or yeah, mid to late 90s and started this six-year degree. I didn't know anyone in Hobart. And Hobart is just, as anyone who has lived here or visited here knows, it's just such mm-hmm. a beautiful city. Gorgeous. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. And it's really thriving and booming now with the minor effect of the last few years. I have to say when I moved here, it wasn't so much like that. It was it was recovering from, or maybe it was still in, you know, really, really difficult economic times. There was a lot of unemployment and so on. So it's just been a delight over the last 20 years to kind of watch it flower But anyway, as to kind of my challenges of medicine, look, to be honest, like like it's hard work, you have to study a lot, but I just felt so kind of embraced by by my uni friends. We were this really tight little band. I'm still great friends with, with, you know, some of the, the girls that I met in those early days. And, yeah, you know, it was just all the usual university stuff, kind of share houses and... Do you know, I want to ask you something about being a doctor, which I've never asked anyone because I'm too embarrassed, but I'm going... I've been watching that Netflix series, New Amsterdam, but even any, and I watched ER back back in the time, but I can't look at anything, like I can't look at somebody slicing skin or surgery or blood or holding an organ. I mean, I really seriously have to look away. Did you think about that when you entered it and how was, I mean, that is really, it can be really stomach churning, can't it? 
Yeah, totally. Look, I personally do not have that level of squeamishness at all. And never Uh, have? No, I really never have. I mean, I am very squeamish. There are things I have to look away from which are more regarding any sort of violence or even allusion to violence. I, I really just cannot stand. But things like a bit of blood, a bit of pus, a boil, an abscess, etc. No, I couldn't turn a hair. I don't turn a hair. And, you know, I mean, sorry, Cheryl, I hope this doesn't, you know, make you squeamish. (laughs) But obviously in the early years of of your medical training, you do do, you're learning anatomy and people do generously donate their bodies to science for us to dissect and to, to learn about. And I have to honestly say that even doing that, it really didn't, it didn't phase me. The Hardest thing for me personally in studying at uni and being a junior doctor was the, you know, particularly being a junior doctor, was just the pressure of the long hours Mm. and that weight of responsibility where, you know, to be honest, I don't think you can just come home and go, oh, well, it's just a job, you know, whatever, if I stuffed up, whatever. You'd have to be a machine to feel that. Like yeah. to, to think that that's how, yeah. you know, you can't. Yeah, no, like like I couldn't. So I would, you know, I, like I do remember those years with, I, I remember the anxiety I felt and, and the terror that I was going to make a mistake or, or, or just the exhaustion, 16-hour shifts and then getting- I want to ask about that because um, is that, why is that, you know, it's almost illegal, say, in my business, Mm. in marketing and, you know, book reviewing to ask somebody to work those hours. I mean, I think it probably is actually. I mean, we just wouldn't do it. And also I wouldn't do it because the quality of writing on the other side probably wouldn't come out as well as it does if you're only working a seven or eight hour day, right? So why has it historically been that expectation of medical students to do that? Is it part of the formation of a doctor or is it just because they treat you badly? I don't know. Look, such a good question. And I have to say, I have no idea what the laws are or even really what the practice is for junior doctors now. You know, this, I graduated in 2001. So this is, this is what, what was happening then that we would work these very long hours. And definitely there's a cultural, there's this huge cultural thing of being strong and tough I mean, people will compliment each other by saying, oh, man, he is a machine. You know, that's almost seen as a positive thing, as someone who can just keep going. I can honestly say that in all the years, virtually all the doctors I've known have just worked hard. They've always put their best foot forward. But there is very often a sense of there being more work than you can comfortably do. And somehow, yeah, there is this culture of it being seen as really valuable to be able to just keep going and going and going. I don't understand it. I don't think it's healthy. Like I think a reasonable level of hard work and resilience and challenge and all that, you know, obviously we all think sure. that's right. yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's healthy. And it's in, increasingly being recognised as unhealthy, you know, the mental, there's, there's a lot of problems with mental illness doctors and so you chose to be a GP because you can go on to choose to be what it you know so many things right right. yep so you know I chose general practice which has been really good I actually now essentially work in kind of women's health and that's my special interest as a GP um, because that's just an area I've always really enjoyed 
So then we've got left brain, right brain, right? Yeah, so, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you knew we are going to get to that, right? Because I, I, I mean, I even think the same of when I speak to lawyers, you know, and I, they're writing fabulous fiction. I think, how do you compartmentalise that? How does that work? So tell me about when you first, like how long have you been writing and how does it, does it complement your career? Is it completely separate? How do you run it? Yeah, good question. I, it's sort of hard to say, you know, when did I really start writing because I was always just writing little bits of things. But because of, I guess, establishing my career and, um, you know, and then having a family, writing was always sort of pushed aside. But, I do, you know, I'd write little things for a newsletter or whatever. You know, I wrote this little article for The Age and blah, blah. But then in around about 2017, I could, you know, my family were at the stage where I could that it wasn't kind of all consuming and work-wise I could have a little bit of time to write. And actually, yeah, that's what happened. So when when my youngest kids were sort of youngest child was getting back to school, so I had had quite a bit of time off from from general practice or been working much reduced. And I sort of thought, oh, to sort of segue back into work, I'm gonna go and talk to someone that I respect, this fellow I know who's who's a general practitioner who I'd kind of worked with over the years and who'd had this really interesting career and who I just knew to be a really good listener. I thought, I'm, I'm just going to go and talk to him, Frank, his name is, and, you know, just, just throw some ideas around and maybe get a bit of guidance. So I went and talked to him and I thought he'd just sort of say, oh, yes, well, maybe, you know, you could work at such and such a clinic or perhaps you might like to, you know, develop your interest in women's health a bit more. But he sort of, I can't even remember what he asked me, but I ended up in tears and basically saying, I've got this thing in me to, to write and, and, and I, and I want to do writing. And he kind of said, well, you know, you seem to me to be a person who likes a bit of structure. Why don't you enrol in some sort of writing course? So I thought, oh, well, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. yeah good tip. It was totally not what I had expected. And I was astounded to find myself in tears. Like I was kind of mortified and embarrassed and astounded. But what that told me when I analysed it afterwards was, wow, obviously this is really strong and I've just been putting it to one side and I should do it. So I talked to my husband. He was like, yeah, you definitely have to do it. He was great, really supportive. So I ended up enrolling in this Masters of Creative Writing degree, which was all done by distance. And, and, you know, this was obviously before we all started doing everything by Zoom last year. You know, it was all online learning. And I got heaps out of that, really learned some great techniques. And I must say, I, I didn't finish the course. I'm, I'm not a master of creative writing. I'm just a, a lapsed master's of creative writing student. But I did, I learned a lot from the units that I did. And um, part of the reason that I stopped doing that was because my my lovely dad suggested that I might like to do the Fiona McIntosh masterclass and actually gave me that course for wow present. I know, very generous. A, yeah, he and he normally has a policy about no Christmas presents for anyone over twelve. So he <laughs> broke <laughs> his policy for me. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So you enrolled? Yes, I enrolled. And off I went. So this would have been in 2018. And uh, and can I also say it was like my longest time away by myself for, for, I don't know, a decade or something. So part of it was just, oh, my goodness. Six nights in a <laughs> service department <laughs> where I don't have to think about anyone else's breakfast or anyone else's, you know, dirty undies or anything. I can just be doing something really fun that I want to do. So I go along. So this was in Adelaide and that's what I met Fiona for the first time and a lovely cohort. I think there are maybe 12 or 15 of us, mostly women. Um, there actually, there was one guy who was a GP also from New Zealand. Anyway, the main thing I remember from that course and the main thing I got out of it was Fiona just saying, stop being so precious. So where that resonated with me is that like, I'm quite a perfectionist and, and quite self-critical, which of course is a, in a way it's a strength, you know, as a writer or as anything, but the weakness of it meant that, like, I'd spent bloody months writing, you know, 15 pages. They were very well written, 15 pages, but 15 pages does not make a novel. So you paid all that money. You spent, well, you, your father paid all that money. You spent yeah, yeah. six <laughs> nights in a service apartment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you could have listened to the Better Reading podcast and we could have told you that. <laughs> It wouldn't have been as much fun. No, it wouldn't have. <laughs> so, look, that made me write a first draft and I must quickly emphasise that I really believe that don't be so precious advice only holds up for your first draft. And after that I became very precious and very meticulous again with my rewriting, but it just helped me get over that block. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's not the fact that you're going to lose those skills that you have, but I think what Fiona means is just do it. Start it, finish it, and then come back and be self-critical. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is where I see um, a lot of writers say that to me. You just, you know, I remember even, you know, years ago being at the Adelaide Writers' Festival and speaking to Isabella Alande. Yeah, oh, right. I wasn't speaking to her. I was listening to her. What was yeah. I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, somebody in the audience asked, you know, when do you write? She said, I wake up in the morning and I write from nine to five. I start and I finish. And I thought back then, wow, if you're a writer, that's a very good tip. Because, yeah. you know, people kind of see it as a bit of a la-la kind of thing. I'll dip in, dip out, do whatever. But, you know, as you know, if it's going to be a book that you're going to finish, you have to apply to it like you apply yourself to a job. 
Oh, totally. And, you know, like there's days you wake up and you just really don't feel like going to work. Like, oh, yeah, I have those days too. Oh, of course we do. Like surely everyone does, right? Yeah, yeah. Really, so, like I don't think you, oh, God, I certainly, goodness, I certainly don't wake up and think, oh, I can't wait to express myself creatively and know all the characters and all, you know, the metaphors. I can't wait. You know, <laughs> like of course there's so many days where I just sort of sit there going, oh, this is hopeless and why am I bothering? And yeah. But like I did, thanks to Fiona, I would just sit there anyway and just write something, not quite nine to five, but school hours a few days a week, I would just get something down. Mm. And so at least then after, I can't really remember how many months, I don't know, 12, about 12 months probably, I had a first draft. Mm. I see a lot of authors too on Facebook. They run these sessions and it's so generous. I often think it's so generous of them. What they do is they just all write together for an hour, one oh. day a week. You know, and I think that that, again, is another incentive. That is to sit there, the discipline of writing. And I often think, isn't that weird, particularly in COVID, you know, you're all sitting in your homes and you're all writing together, but that must give you something, doesn't it? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, it would yes. make it and it gives you that camaraderie, which otherwise you don't get as mm. a writer but the, and which you do get in many workplaces, don't you? you yeah, have yeah. The lovely Candace Fox does it. I don't know if you know her. She's a crime fiction writer and she just does it. I don't know when it is, but I often see all the little, just watching it on Facebook, um, see everybody jump on and all they're doing is sitting there typing. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. Oh, yeah, it is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing I remember off Facebook that I thought of so much, you know, when I was doing this, was Margaret Atwood was promoting a, like, a masterclass she was doing, which I, I didn't, I didn't want to pay to do her masterclass, I, you know, I, and I didn't need another masterclass at that point. I, I didn't really, really feel I was masterclassed out. But she said, you know, one tip she gave was, the bin is your friend. And I was just like, yeah, the bin, mm. Just throw it in the bin if it's not working. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good tip, isn't it? That's a great tip, isn't it? So from start to finish, how long did it take you to write? I reckon, um, look, about two and a half years from start to finish, yeah. And were yeah. you working? I did actually, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was working at the time. Yeah, yeah. so I worked all through that. I didn't really yeah. tell anyone much. Actually, when my husband read the first draft, he was like, oh, this is, this is you know, more than I thought. <laughs> He goes, you sound quite funny in this. <laughs> it's an insight into somebody's soul, isn't it, reading fiction? <laughs> yeah, yeah, potentially, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did you feel when you came to the end of the project? As in when I had my first draft ready? Yeah, good question. I actually was in the extraordinarily fortunate and unusual position of, of receiving an offer from a publisher right around the time I finished my first draft I was still actually tinkering with the it, it kind of all didn't go according to, to my plan but I was still tinkering with the last few chapters when Tegan Morrison from Echo who had had read the first three chapters asked to see the whole manuscript so that process of finishing the first draft was all kind of overlaid with this oh my goodness um thrill and excitement and trepidation I guess of of showing that Mm. to her. And how does it feel to be compared to Leanne Moriarty? Because, I mean, you know, everywhere you look, people are comparing it to that. I just, you, you can see my face. Um, <laughs> I just wince with mortification because, oh. of, I mean, because, uh, because of how flattering that comparison is. I think she's just a brilliant, brilliant writer and not only in the 
you know, not just as compared to the, you know, other people in the genre in which she writes, like compared with any, with any writer I can think of, she just does so many brilliant things in terms of plot, in terms of characterization, in terms of dialogue. So yes, I feel mortified and also thrilled to be compared <laughs> to her. <laughs> Good. Well, just one last question before we go, and I'm interested in this, because your career, you know, being a GP and being a writer, do you think that the twain meet in the centre? Do you think you bring some of that job into this job and, you know, does that happen? Does it intertwine? Because you're speaking, you're hearing people's stories day in, day out, aren't you? Yeah, that's such a good question and interestingly one I've never really thought about. They must do. Look, I think, to be perfectly honest, I think, you know, every doctor has strengths and weaknesses, right? And I think my strength as a doctor, you know, some people's strength is their amazing diagnostic ability or their great decision-making or their fantastic at surgery or, you know, whatever it is. And I think my strength as a doctor is the ability to listen. And I think that to be a writer, you know, writing in the genre in which I write, you have to have listened and observed and tried to understand life. So even though, of course, I would never use anything that I learn at work. Oh, of course. Yeah, fiction, yeah. You know, yeah. that goes without saying. Yeah. There is still that that ability, to, you know, that, that to listen and observe, which I think is the common skill of both areas of work. Yeah. I've got to tell you, Katie, if I went to my GP and she told me she was a writer, I'd be thrilled to bits. It would oh, up <laughs> in my pedestal. I'd be, wow, you're doing this and you can do that. I mean, it would be a bonus, I think. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Well, oh, you know, that, 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 that's really nice. I mean, I, I wonder if, if many people would say that. I, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, the book is called The Mistake. Um, Katie McMahon, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.